1: another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Back in Los Angeles, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And joining us from Nashville, Tennessee, working hard on his hashtag dad brand, it's the coach, Corey Burton.
0: Well, I'm earning my dad brand today. We, uh, Funny story is we bought, hugged this, uh, we bought it used from, uh, from a Facebook group called Buy, Sell, Trade. And it's a little pottery barn chair. And he absolutely loves it. And, uh, He's, uh, he gets fired up every – you know, he, he goes – you know, when Huck likes something, he will uh, – he'll keep circling back to it, um, you know, because he's a little toddler and he, he goes through a cycle of, of things to get into, uh, and he keeps going back to the chair. Like, he'll, he'll go grab something and bring it over to his chair, and he absolutely loves it. So, that would be good.
1: Uh, Huck cycles back to the chair like you cycle back to the Mountain West. Exactly. Love it. Love it. Well, finally, uh, we'd be remiss if we did not introduce the third amigo in the second city, a man who has a keen appreciation for supper clubs. It's our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting,
2: Josh. <laughs> you always see these random things about me, and half the time, it's things that you like, too. So I always feel like you're throwing me under the bus. <laughs> Well,
1: I, I, I'm not going you go under the bus at all. You, you know I love a good supper club more than the next guy, quite frankly. You and I both have, uh, have had our, uh, our, our fair share of meals at uh, supper clubs, particularly with your uh, dear Grandma Jean. Not my Grammy Jean, but your <laughs> Grammy Jean.
2: Um, I think the secret to a good supper club is a lot of extras on the salad bar. And you've got to have a good gravy.
1: You gotta have a good <laughs> gravy with whatever meat they're serving. You just you gotta have a solid gravy that it just brings the meal together like the rug in the Big Lebowski. So, are we um, a football podcast? Um, can't tell him. Uh, apparently not. So, okay. um, well, Josh, I we're gonna start today because I know you got a couple things you just want to get off your chest. So I'm gonna cede the floor to you.
2: Uh, Yeah, this is just sort of three little things that didn't really fit into anything uh, else that we were doing today. Uh, The first is Rutgers finished the dream season. They went winless in the Big Ten. Uh, They will get the honorary Kansas treatment next season for their spreads. Uh, But I was really curious about where their season stacked up in terms of awfulness. So um, I'm working on this for the blog. It'll be up there in a little bit. Um, and I'll present it on our next show, but uh, comparing Rutgers' uh, 0-9 season to the other 25 teams that went 0-8 or 0-9 in the Big Ten since they uh, expanded their season in 1971. And uh, their four games that they got shut out in is holding up quite well right now. Uh, the other is just a little bit of word of warning to Iowa and Pitt. I know that they finished the season really strong, and it's, it's awesome. And unlike USC, they had no title to play for, but they kept fighting really hard. And uh, I just don't want the fan bases to get complacent because, like, you know, Iowa, even after their 40-point explosion against Nebraska, they're 80th in scoring, 114th in passing. At 72nd in a rush eight.
1: Hold on. I just want to interject there really quick, Josh, because that, that 118th in passing, or what was it? 118th, 114th in passing? 114. That's shocking to me because I thought coming into the season that after JT Barrett, CJ Beathard was the best quarterback in the Big Ten. Well, and they had
2: no line. And their best receiver got hurt. Yeah, Vandenberg,
1: Vandenberg being hurt obviously really killed them. But still, like, Iowa always has tight ends. Like, Iowa always yeah. has tight ends. And, but, yeah, they're at least going to be middle of a pack with, with, yeah. with him.
2: George Kittle was also hurt, but I think it goes to show that they didn't really develop anyone. They were very thin at the skill positions. And just schematically, they had issues. Like, when you finish the season strong, don't let that be fool's gold. Look at the other, you know. Look at the game. Look at the season, and really evaluate things. And once the euphoria of beating Michigan and making it better than expected bowl game wears off, there's some real stuff that this coaching staff has to figure out. Yeah, and it is the same way defensively, which is really
1: surprising coming from a, a Narduzzi squad. And uh, Greg Davis, when we, we've talked about him ad nauseum, like you're on the podcast, so I don't want to get back into that at all. Yeah. But he, he, and then, he has got, he's got some
2: issues. Yeah. Uh, and then my third point is, you know, there's different ways to make bowl games. And Miami of Ohio had to have gone about the hardest route to get there. They started out 0-6, including losing to an FCS team. And yet they finished on a six-game winning streak. They made a bowl game the honest way at 6-6. Six and six. They won't be one of the 5-7 and seven teams that slip in. So hats off to the Red Hogs, but... I'm really curious, Coach, because like, how do you keep these young men engaged and hungry when when you're staring at like an zero and six mark? I know I know your team down there in the prep ranks had a little bit of a long season, but you know what are what are some of the kind of behind the scenes stuff that you guys are doing? Well, I mean, I think you start to
0: incorporate and make practices fun. I think you, you know, you, you try to take away from the grind of it because when you're at zero and six, it can become a huge, huge grind. And it's it's one of those things where uh, you're you're running that fine line of of losing the kids. And if if they kind of feel like it's it's a job, and they the the fun of it is, is zapped, maybe your season really turns south. And I think we got to that point. Uh, with my team and we never recovered so um, you know we walked the fine line and we actually uh, we actually didn't uh, succeed uh, maintaining that fine line but Miami of Ohio obviously did they probably just incorporated more competition in their practice they probably simplified And, and the message to the team was just let's you know let's keep doing what we do and you know just have faith in the system and you know, this thing works and this thing can work. And if we all come together, it's probably one of those come together type speeches that sounds extremely cliche, but it actually really does work. So, um, I mean, those guys bought in uh, and, and they, they obviously just d- decided that, you know, they weren't going to let an 0 6 start ruin their season. And and they went on a winning streak and, and those guys came together. So, you know, it was very exciting, Miami of Ohio um, and you know it's a, it's a really good example on how not to give up on your goals when your season seems like it's going south so you know I'm, I'm going to use this season for the for the Red Hawks is in the future is kind of hey when things are going south just you know just keep battling keep going keep trucking along and 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 you'll eventually get there and and Turn it around. Just keep doing what you're doing. Harp on the positives. Try not to be so negative because it could be very easy to get negative in those situations. So, um, you know, hats off to that coaching staff, and you know, just a lot of good positivity and a lot of good energy uh, from from that coaching staff is probably what made all the difference in the world.
1: Yeah, and you know, for for you know for, for that team to start off. Oh and six. They the only reason they're not in the MAC title game is because of a tiebreaker um, that they lost to Ohio, who will be playing Western Michigan in the MAC title game. But they, you know, they lost seventeen to seven in uh, in their fifth game of the season. Then they lost at Akron, and then they have you know rip off six straight wins, and some of those. In the MAC, especially at Eastern Michigan, who has been one of the great surprises in all of college football this year. I mean, we thought they were going to be horrendous. They ended up seven and five this year. That's a quality win um, at Eastern Michigan, um, you know, as well as versus Central Michigan, a team we know is uh, tough in that league. So hats off to that in- entire squad. And it's it's really astounding to see a team go zero and six and then six and zero in their Final six games, and i you know it's been a really fun ride to watch them and what 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 has really impressed me has been um, you know their ability to win uh, you know a bunch of you know close games in this final one uh, versus ball state twenty one twenty able to pull it off at the end that shows a lot of grit and determination, and that's one of the things that you've got to love to see out of your squad, uh, whether you're a fan or a coach. So, um, well, I, I, let's move to talking about some of the big coaching maneuvering that has been happening over the weekend. Obviously, the biggest uh, – when we recorded on Thursday evening, uh, you know, the news was that Tom Herman was going to be – the new coach at Louisiana State. But uh, in an interesting turn of events, uh, Texas goes ahead and loses to TCU like we expected them to. They fired Charlie Strong. Next thing you know, Tom Herman, new coach at Texas. LSU decides to take the interim tag off of Ed Orgeron, and he is now the official coach going forward for LSU. We also had uh, this weekend Ron Carriger fired from San Jose State. Bill Polian fired from Nevada. And now, obviously, Houston has a coaching vacancy with Herman leaving. Uh, FAU fired Charlie Partridge who is going to be a, uh, a really solid defensive coordinator for someone coming up soon. But, Coach, uh, you know, I, I want to start with you here. Um, I, I know you have a, a couple of thoughts here uh, going forward. So let's start with uh, Ed Orgeron at LSU. Is this going to be, uh, you know, his old Miss redux? Uh, are we just going to see another version of his kind of hapless Rebel squads? Or do you think he has grown and changed in, you know, in the past 10 years?
0: I think he's grown and changed. I I think you could see that as he went through the season. Um, I think there are some moments where you feel like he didn't, but I I think that he understands now um, how to run a program. He understands that recruiting, albeit very important, it can't be the 100% focus. He's got to, you know, as a head coach, he's got other aspects of the program he's got to focus on. And he knows that now, and I think the second time around should bode a little bit better for him. Um, I think he did the right thing by making sure that he kept Dave Aranda on staff. I think that was extremely important. Uh, LSU's defense was phenomenal this year; it was a strong point of their team. So I think it was, you know, I think it was good for for him to keep Aranda uh, around. Um, I think, you know, I think it's going to de- depend on. Who he hires uh, for the rest of his staff? It depends on what he does as offensive coordinator. I know he's uh, going for the gold and 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 going after Lane Kiffin, which I, I don't think I don't think he's going to be successful in that run.
1: Yeah, I don't uh, see that happening. I don't see he, Kiffin's not leaving Alabama to go to LSU. He's only leaving Alabama to get a head position.
0: Yeah, he's not he's not moving laterally, so that's a pipe dream and and something that he hopes for, uh, just because they're friends, but. Um, you know, I, I like it. You know, the players have bought into it. He's a Louisiana, uh, native. He is a Raging Cajun. He is perfect for that job. And, uh, and I think he would kill it. And, and, and I think he's going to do a lot better than he did at Ole Miss. And of course, you know, a lot of it's just because he's grown up.
1: So. And uh, I'd like to add a couple things to that. First of all, he's openly admitted that this is his dream job, and I am very happy for him that he now is at the helm of an LSU program, which, let's face it, has national title aspirations every single year. One of the things that I hope that he has you know, grown into is – understanding that he has to trust his lieutenants a little bit more. One of the things he was really highly criticized about during his tenure at Ole Miss was that he was a micromanager. He wanted to control everything. And I think that keeping Aranda, which is obviously someone he trusts, and hopefully hiring an offensive coordinator who he can trust will allow him to focus on what he does best, which is recruiting – which is, you know, getting the players up and getting the guys focused, uh, getting in their faces and being tough when he has to be tough, but also being, you know, kind of a father figure. There was a fantastic piece uh, in The Ringer this morning by Roger Sherman about Ed Orgeron sticking around at LSU. And if you haven't read it, I highly, highly recommend it because it sheds a lot of light into sort of who... Orgeron is and how he has grown and changed from his time starting way back at the U. I mean, you got to remember, this is a guy who recruited uh, Warren Sapp. This is a guy who recruited The Rock. This is a guy who recruited Cortez Kennedy and some of these really, truly great defensive linemen that they had during the heyday of uh, the U. So, Josh... I know you've got some you know, some thoughts here on Coach O, and I'd I love to hear sort of your take on this.
2: Well, first of all, I really like the hire. I'd give it B plus, A minus. Um, the one concern you have is now that he's got it, does he slip back into any of those bad habits he had at Ole Miss? I read that he wrote a diary of everything he did wrong there and what he would change if he had another job. So it seems like... While that is a concern, I don't see it happening. Um, One other potential concern is who will be that offensive coordinator. I agree with you guys. I don't think he's going to get Lane Kitchen unless they are incredibly good friends. And this is something that we don't know how tight their relationship actually is. But what I really like about it is um, – I do agree with you, Coach, that he can't solely focus on recruiting like he did when he was an assistant at at some of his other stops. But I think he's going to do a little bit of what Howard Schellenberger did, which was the state of Miami cut Florida in half and they get everyone they want. I think he's just going to have a wall around Louisiana. If any kid from Louisiana doesn't play there, it's because they ain't good enough or LSU already has 10 kids on the depth chart at that position. And we know Louisiana makes a ton, a ton of prospects. And you can run a perfectly good to great program solely on Louisiana kids. It's just like Pennsylvania or Ohio. And and I think that's what Ed Odron's going to do. And I think that his flexibility, his newfound flexibility after fullness failure and seeing what Les Miles did wrong at the end of his run makes us a really, really high – ceiling higher in my opinion
1: it is a very high ceiling higher another high ceiling higher is obviously uh, herman going to texas there was a big kerfuffle about everything between him being asked in the pregame uh, in you know this player's mindset before that let's face it that was an epic game Versus Memphis. That was probably my personal favorite game to watch this weekend, just from a fan standpoint, just a fan of the game. Obviously, you know, the battle for Paul Bunyan's axe is the one that I am the most invested in, but that game between Memphis and Houston was just so fantastic. Back and forth, guys breaking receiving records left and right. I, but, you know, obviously those kids did not have their heads quite in the game because they all knew that Herman was out the door. But let's look at this from a Texas perspective. Uh, Charlie Strong has definitely left the cupboard uh, anything but bare. They've got some really talented guys, starting with their quarterback, Shane Bouchel, and – You know, uh, Coach, I'm going to throw this to you first, but what can we sort of expect from, you know, how high should the expectations be for Texas as early as next season?
0: I mean, I think they should be incredibly high. I mean, I I think you have uh, a good base. I think you have a lot of talent. I think he's hired early enough to where you can salvage the recruiting season. I think for what they paid for him, I think the, the ceiling's got to be high. You know, it's got to be uh, through the roof, and it's got to be – I mean, I, I don't know uh, if playing for the national championship is is, is your expectation, but, I mean, it's got to be – you know, you've got to go to a bigger bowl game um, at least, and you've got to be in contention for the Big 12. Otherwise, I think you consider this thing a failure, at least failure in year
1: one. Josh, what do you think? Do you think they'll be able to compete with the Oklahomas and Oklahoma states of the world in the Big 12 next year?
2: Probably, but I want to give a little bit of a word of warning because, first of all, this is a really quick stop by Tom Herman at Houston. He Maybe he's at his dream job or maybe he's hoping to get to the NFL. We don't know what his mindset is. We don't know what his loyalty is. So that's one concern I have. And it's so obviously he lied to his players, which just pisses me off. I don't mind coaches leaving, just be upfront about it. But here's a little word of warning Charlie Strong's last two years at Louisville, they went 23 and 3. Tom Herman's two years at Houston, 22 and 4. So you're getting a guy with less of a head coaching track record than Charlie Strong, who has an identical record. As Charlie Strong essentially. Also, Tony Levine, he got fired from Houston, but he was 21 and 17, went to a bowl game his last two years, went 15 and 10. Hell of a recruiter. So, Tom Herman takes over a stacked Houston team and got worse from year one to year two. That's a little bit of a concern. And also, If you look at Houston's three losses this year, you have to question some of his coaching. It looked like they had never seen the triple option before against Navy. That's a conference foe. You know that you have to play Navy. How can you be that blindsided? They get absolutely obliterated by SMU, a team they have no business losing by three touchdowns to. And then against Memphis, I know they had a nice second-half comeback, but they also gave up a million yards – a boatload of points. So there were times where Houston was clearly not the greatest coach outfit in the world, and we know Texas fans have a really short fuse. I don't see that Herman is much of an upgrade on Charlie Strong. You know,
1: they're so they're so different in who they are. Obviously, Herman has more traditional Texas roots. Than Charlie Strong ever did. But, you know, and, and I think that the the boosters there obviously are enamored with Herman because of that, because of his history with the program, because he is this guy who has had you know success in the state. Charlie Strong, he's a he's a Florida Southeast kind of guy. He never quite fit the culture of that program. And obviously. Herman seems like he is going to be a better fit there. But, Josh, I completely agree with some of your questions there because they're going to have, you know, there's definitely going to be growing pains for Herman because if he thought that facing, you know, Navy and SMU was kind of rough and Memphis was kind of rough, well, what happens when West Virginia and Texas Tech and some of these other offenses that can – put up numbers that are out of this world, you know, come to town. Tom Herman is not a defensive guy. And that was the biggest issue with this Texas team. And I I don't see the answers necessarily coming along, you know, um, immediately. Um, But I want to throw this uh, out to you guys next.
2: I just had one other other real quick point because you brought up his ties to Texas. And we saw that in the Big Ten where – when Michigan got rid of Rodriguez, they were so concerned with fighting a Michigan man, finding a, a coach with a legacy, that they got Brady Hoke. And Hoke has a very similar resume to Tom Herman as well. He did incredible things at SDSU, but just wasn't ready for a big, big-time job. The, the last coach that Texas had that was one hell of a coach was Mack Brown. He... Played at Vanderbilt and Florida State. He's from the state of Tennessee and had no previous coaching job in the state of Texas prior to getting the job. So you can develop someone to be this Texas persona. Everyone thinks Mac Brown is like a Texan. He's not. If you get the right coach and they win there, then it's emblematic of your state to have this blind devotion. To someone who was on your staff a million years ago, can just be silly.
1: Yeah, it, it definitely can, and it is. We, we've seen the bite programs in the butt on multiple occasions, not just at Michigan, but we've seen it happen at programs like USC before. Think about Lane Kiffin's tenure there. They hired him basically because he was an offensive coordinator Sark. under under uh, Sark as well. They they both worked under. Carol in the glory days and they are trying to harken back to that. And you wonder, you know, you, in retrospect, what was, you know, what were they thinking? Um, my, my question to you guys though, is, you know, we've got, we've got a couple of group of five jobs open. We've got San Jose state, Nevada. I'm going to leave Houston out of this for right now because Houston is still better than probably 15 to 20% of the power five jobs, but San Jose, Nevada, Georgia state, um, and FAU are all open right now. Which of those four do you think is the best job? And I'll start with you, Josh.
2: So not Houston, hmm. not, not,
1: Houston not not Houston, and not the yeah. ones that have already hired guys. Fresno State, FIU, yeah, um,
2: yeah. Uh, I don't know why, but I've always sort of been enamored with Nevada. Okay, so that's
1: what I was going to say too. I've always thought Nevada is a is a sneaky it's a sneaky
2: program. Well, we've seen Chris Alt have tons and tons of success. a Hall of Fame coach for a reason, and Las Vegas has a really really good prep um, program there with multiple schools doing some really good things.
1: Especially Bishop Gorman, who's probably the best program in the country right now. Yeah,
2: I, I mean, I know I know a lot of those kids are going to bleed over to California. Um, and some of the – putting the crop will, will head out elsewhere, but you know, three-star kids are really, really good for the Mountain West. And even Boise – yeah, okay.
1: I want to say even on top of that, there are a lot of California kids who are really solid three-star types who aren't going to UCLA, USC, Cal, or Stanford that – you know, Reno is right across the border from California. It's a three-hour drive from – the Bay Area, and coaches, you know, the Bay Area is one of the the hottest spots in the country right now for prep talent.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I mean, I think you have, I think you're really close to a fertile recruiting ground. Um, but uh, you know, and I think that's a really good job. I think, I think uh, Polian did a good job of you know, kind of just building the the program and just kind of getting it to where. Um, it was at least better than it was when he found it type situation, and you know he took over for a ledge and struggled a little bit, but then I, I think he 's got kind of things stabilized and and things back to where uh, they need to be and, and so you got to you know he did a good job and and the next guy will hopefully blow the lid off of it, and become a dominant mountain west team, which i mean that that conference is is a, is a very competitive conference because you have Colorado State sitting there. Who's recruiting better and better each and every year under bobo uh you have air force academy who um you know obviously they have a tough time recruiting because they're they're recruiting under different standards but um, you know you have your powerhouses with byu not byu uh boise state and uh, san diego state so i mean you're in a great power you're in a great group of five conference um probably even you know, I might even argue – I might even put it up against the American. And, Matt, I know that, that, that makes you – So, up.
1: I was going to say, you know, we, we had that debate about what's better right now, the American or the Big 12. I think you can have the same debate with Mountain West Big 12 because the middle of pack in the Mountain West is really strong. And we've seen that strength throughout this season, especially recently New Mexico, Wyoming, you know, the Bobos, like you mentioned. All these teams are – really quality football programs. Air Force beat Boise this past weekend. So the last thing I want to wrap up uh, with this coaching thing is I think that both Georgia State and FAU have potential to be game-changing programs, especially Georgia State. We've talked about Georgia State a couple times here on the podcast. And, I mean, they are – They're in Atlanta. They are going, you know, they've now got the Turner Field facility, and they're going to be able to do big, big things with that. FAU, Boca Raton, you know, South Florida. We've talked about the state of Miami stuff, but there are, you know, you can't can't walk through a high school in South Florida without bumping into at least a couple three stars. So, you know, even if you can get a couple of those guys, Charlie Partridge was never really quite able to connect. But if you get someone who's got – connections with the Florida prep football scene. There's there's no reason that FAU cannot compete for the belt um, in a couple of years.
2: Well, that's why I was so stunned when I read the article about firing Charlie Partridge that Luke Fickle is at the top of their, their searching list right now because <clears throat> I think they need someone with ties to Florida. And I, I spit this name out to you guys in our in our chat off the air, and that is I know he coached at FIU, so it would be kind of fun to piss off your arch rival. But Art Cristobal was really good at FIU. He got them to two straight bowl games. He never should have been fired. He's on Saban's staff, so he's already a good coaching mind who's now learning from the best. How is he not the top of their list instead of Luke Fickle? It makes no sense to me.
1: Coach, you got anything for that? Because I got got no reason why Cristobal would not be the first guy I call.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, with, uh, you know, I'm also looking at uh, Mario Cristobal as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, he he seems like the logical choice. Maybe he's, you know, maybe he's too old, but I don't know. uh, How old is Mario Cristobal right now, Josh? Do you know? Oh, he's pretty young.
2: If he's he's past 50, I'd be surprised.
1: I would say
0: early forties. I mean, he was, yeah. I mean, he was pretty young.
1: Uh, Mario Cristobal, by the way, is 46 years old. Yeah, uh, nice. So he is a, he, he is a young, he is a, he's a young man. And I have
2: another name to throw out there at some of these schools looking for a new coach. Uh, very, very quietly up there in the Palouse, Moscow, the Idaho Vandals are seven and four this year. Paul Petrino's improved their numbers every year that he's been there. They are going back to FCS once their time in the Sun Belt ends. But this is a guy who knows offense. Even if he has to take a coordinatorship, you know, maybe maybe this could be a backup plan for Ed Odron. Who knows? But, this is a guy who's doing some pretty good things out in Idaho, and it's very, very under the radar. Fun yeah. fact about Paul Petrino: besides
1: having a brother who is, has an affinity for motorcycle accidents, he was born <laughs> in Butte, Montana. So I, don't, I, I think he might want to stick around up there in Idaho. It's, a, it's, it's his native territory. So, and he went to co- Josh. He went to college in Montana as well, Carroll College. So maybe he just likes it up there. Maybe he's just happy up there in Idaho and I wouldn't blame him. I mean, obviously they have a they have a, they have a, they have a tough travel schedule because Lord knows they have to travel to you know, being in the Sunbelt, which Idaho in the Sunbelt still is one of the, the most baffling things to me in the yeah. in in terms of conference realignment. But
2: maybe uh, maybe he can go to Nevada. He's in the same neighborhood. Oh, yeah. But is that – do you leave Idaho to go to Nevada? You do when you know that your program is going down to FCS. ranking. Yes, absolutely
0: you do if you're going down to
2: FCS. Yeah,
1: if you're going down to FCS, that's, that's very true. That's very true. All right.
2: Well, Not that there's anything wrong with all the FCS coaches. It's no. just that's, that would be a tough pill to swallow. It would yeah, be a tough pill to swallow. If, if
0: you have a chance to go FBS – um, you always need to take that opportunity because I think that would be the right thing to do, um, money wise, facility wise. You know, it, it leaves you set up for a bigger job if you want it. Um, you do well at you do well at Nevada, and, and you, the next Pac-12 opening that comes out, you know, you, you're potentially the guy. So, um, another interesting note before we get off the the coaching carousel, uh, former. Former Buffs head coach Dan Hawkins was uh, was slated to become uh, Butch Davis's offensive coordinator at FIU. He is now taking the head coaching job at UC Davis. So he is he is accepted to be the head coach at UC Davis. Does he
2: have any? Does he have any more sons to be his starting quarterback? I certainly hope not
1: for the Aggies' sake, <laughs> because they we, we all saw how that worked out in Boulder. Um, well, let's let, let's talk about a couple of these more uh, Group of Five games that happened over the weekend. There were a bunch of relatively surprising uh, games. We already talked about, you know, Memphis over Houston in that barn burner, Air Force over Boise State. That was a shocker. Western Michigan completed their undefeated regular season at twelve and zero with a big win over Toledo. Uh, Southern Miss uh, had a big win over Louisiana Tech. Navy finished off uh, finished off their nice regular season, beating SMU. Uh, UL Lafayette, our our favorite raging Cajuns, beat Arkansas State, much to the surprise of many of us. The Fighting Bobos took down San Diego State, and as mentioned earlier, New Mexico beat Wyoming, and in what was uh, you know another shocking upset in the Mountain West. But that that conference has been great from top to bottom this year. So my question for you guys, and I'm going to start with you, Josh. Is I'm going to ask you what is the most surprising group of five conference title game? And I'm, I'll, I'll run them down for people in case you're not, um, in case you don't have them right in front of you. First of all, uh, in the MAC, we've got Western Michigan taking on Ohio. In the American Navy will take on Temple. In Conference USA. Western, Carolina, Western Kentucky, I'm sorry, will be taking on Louisiana Tech. And finally, in the Mountain West, San Diego State will be taking on Wyoming. So of those four, obviously, the belt does not have a conference title game. But uh, of those four, which is the most surprising to you? If, you would have, if I would have told you at the beginning of the season that these would be the conference title matchups, which one of these would surprise you the most, Josh?
2: Well, let me use a process of, the, of elimination, and <clears throat> the American has one of their champions from last year in it again, Temple, and Navy is a really, really well-run program with Niamato Lolo. So while that's a pinch of a surprise with Navy, you can't say that's the most surprising. So I'm going to eliminate the American. But down there in Conference USA – we had Western Kentucky so and Metal Tennessee State. They were right there. They battled towards the end. WKU got the lead, so that's not very surprising. And Louisiana Tech, we had them finishing just below Southern Miss, but we talked about how good a job Holtz has been doing down there. So that can't be surprising. Hats off to Old Dominion, though. They went 9-3, 7-1. They're really unprogrammed. That was a cool story. So Conference USA they can't be in there. In the MAC, the best team made it. And the fight in Frank Sola just made it. So how's that a surprise? That leaves the biggest just wacky conference title game for the Group of Five in the Mountain West. And, I mean, who in their right mind would have had Wyoming? None of us saw this coming. Air Force would have been a better pick. Even New Mexico made a bowl game. And that's if you're looking for a dark horse – to the top Boise State in the Mountain Division. So that was wackiness. And then the way SDSU got there, not a surprise. We expect them to win their division, but to lose their last two games, to lose that South Alabama game, they they had a very, very strange season. So Mountain West by far takes the cake. And Sunbelt, you left an important thing out, Matt. If Arkansas State wins this weekend – against Texas State, who's currently winless in the Sun Belt, so they should be able to do it. My crazy prediction of a co-champion will also come true. I am I am a Kansas and Sun Belt savant, which is about the worst thing to possibly be when talking about college football.
0: Maybe you should just sell out and become a Jayhawk fan. How about that?
2: Rock shock baby. Hey, I get to see some good basketball.
1: Uh Coming into the year, all three of us predicted Wyoming to finish dead last in the uh, Mountain West Mountain Division.
2: And we probably weren't the only ones.
1: Uh, no. So that, that, that's pretty astounding. Um, I, I, for me, the biggest surprise of Mountain West um, has obviously, you know, Wy- Wyoming is, is – is, I'm, I'm speechless. I'm pointing. I am completely speechless that this Wyoming team is, you know, in the in the conference title game against an SDSU team that we, you know, we thought going into the season was, you know, you know, one of the best Group of Five teams uh, with a, you know, very dark horse Heisman contender in Donnell Pumphrey. And so, giving mean, coach, you are you are so up on the Mountain West. So, you know, are are you with Josh here? Do you think this is the most surprising title game?
0: Yeah, I mean, obviously it is because we picked Wyoming to finish dead last. And, you know, this has been one of the more unpredictable conferences all around. I mean, you know, we wouldn't have said, you know, if you told me that Donnell Pumphrey was going to win the rushing title for the, you know, be the leading rusher in the country, um, and then they lose two games, one to South Alabama. South Alabama's got two of the most surprising wins on their schedule with uh, beating Mississippi State and, and San Diego State. So, Uh, You know, hats off to the Jaguars. Um, You know, the uh, so it's got to be the most surprising. Um, Also, I guess without a title game, the most surprising would be, um, obviously, Arkansas State losing their first conference game in two years. Um, That's always a shock. Um, So I I guess that's got to kind of be the honorable mention, right? And then Navy, because I guess everybody was kind of riding – riding uh Houston's bandwagon there for, for a while. So um I, I guess Navy could count, I guess, as being a surprise, but they're well coached and, you know, they're they're always in the picture. So it's not really that surprising if you think about it. Um so obviously the the answer's gotta be the Mountain West, you know, hands down.
1: Yeah, and that's gonna be a good game. That that SDSU Wyoming game, we, we, we've already seen it once this season. It, it's definitely going to be a slugfest, and I'm quite frankly very excited about that game. You know, I obviously I, I root for Colorado State for reasons that I still don't quite understand, and I, always, I, you know, I was hope I was secretly hoping that they would be able to make it into the conference title game, but. Still, th- this Wyoming story is is truly astounding.
2: Well, we they watch? figured out where it's being played because I was watching the telecast of Wyoming, and so they, they said they had to bring out like four computers too. Uh, to the
1: game is going to be in Laramie. All right. So, um, War Memorial Stadium. Yep, War Memorial Stadium in Laramie, Wyoming, is the center of the Mountain West
2: world. It looks gorgeous on TV. I'm going to go to a game there at some point.
1: I, I drove through Laramie uh, earlier this year, and it is a very, very picturesque... picturesque. It's an
2: open invite for the YMF Department to invite the best college football podcast to do a live show there. Uh,
1: you know what? If they're paying for the tickets, I'm going. So oh, Yeah, that's a business trip. Well, let, well, let's move over then to... Uh, to, uh, to, we'll begin with, with the Power Five conferences with the ACC, which saw a couple of you know, pretty shocking results this weekend. Uh, one of them, a non-conference game that we, we picked, we said Kentucky would beat Louisville, at least some of us. Did myself and uh, they did it, and uh, which to some people was very, very shocking. But we knew Louisville, without being able to make the title game or pretty much being out of the national title picture, uh, was gonna have a letdown. And they did, they lost at home to a Kentucky squad, which is, you know, seven and five and has acquitted themselves quite nicely. On the season elsewhere around the conference, uh, North Carolina State pulled off the upset in Chapel Hill to win twenty eight to twenty one uh, Clemson absolutely destroyed South Carolina. Uh, Florida State uh, beat down Florida pretty badly, and uh, Boston College somehow became bowl eligible, which is to me, probably the most frustrating thing on the year. Talk about uh, um, a, you know, a, a fan base uh, that should not be excited about their coach making a bowl game and not being fired. Boston College, I'm, you know, I, obviously I have no emotion towards you besides hatred. But they <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you, know, I, you know, I almost feel like a little bit bad that you have to suffer through Adazio for another year. So, um, uh my, my question to the group, and I'll start with you, Josh. What was the bigger upset this weekend? Was it the Wolfpack beating the Tar Heels, or was it that Kentucky team beating Louisville in Louisville?
2: Well, Kentucky had already locked down a bowl game. They were playing for a lot of pride. They hadn't won that rivalry game in a while. So I don't think that one was terribly surprising. But the NC State game, to me, was very, very surprising at May have saved Dave Doran's job to get to his uh, third straight bowl game with the, tar- the Wolf Pack. Um, and what was surprising to me is just how it played out. And I know Elijah Hood was banged up earlier in the season, but he supposedly has been healthy. And I'm looking at his numbers, and I just don't think he was. Against NC State, 11 touches, 56 yards. He's way too good of a talent to only get the ball 11 times. So either the injury is way worse than presented or Larry Fedora is slipping into some bad habits and forgot what got them to the ACC title game a year ago because just one-dimensional teams seldom do well. So hats off for the Wolfpack to stifle the Tar Heel running attack. get the win. And as for the Tar Heels, I don't know. I'm at a loss for words.
0: Yeah, they just come limping in, the Tar Heels. And I was really disappointed watching that game because it never really seemed that they were in it. And that's surprising because of how good they seemed, even up to that point. You know, it just seemed like they were just got screwed over by a hurricane and that was it but obviously it wasn't, um, you know, they, they've got some, they've got some fatal flaws, I guess, within their program that are being exposed each and every, or you know, I guess it was be, that finally got exposed by their rivals. So, you know, Dave Dorn did a good job of, of doing that and, and making sure that um, just making sure that they, uh, that they did what they need to do to to come out with a victory in that uh, in that game, so you know hats off the dorm, but i 'm gonna brag on Kentucky a little bit because Kentucky is a basketball school that 's not used to being remotely relevant in football um, and you have to you have to look at this win as here comes the Heisman trophy um, everyone i 'll say winner because everyone was talking about it as being the winner you know he was supposed to be the guy he was supposed to be guaranteed and and Louisville is supposed to be the Playoff team that was gonna that was gonna get in, finish second in their division, and that them in Ohio State were gonna get in without winning their division, and uh, and so here they come, the big bad, the big bad Louisville Cardinals are gonna host you know little Kentucky, who's just this little basketball school that really has no bearing on on anything football related. So we're just gonna kind of sleepwalk into this, and they got what they deserved, and I was surprised by it. I was surprised how how – I don't want to say dominant because they didn't dominate the game, but, you know, just kind of how comfortable Kentucky felt. I mean, I think that's the first time that they'd ever really felt that way in a football game. And it's kind of the first time you've really ever seen Kentucky just kind of boss a game like they did and just kind of seemed like every time Louisville would punch, Kentucky would throw a counterpunch and and, and just – Come back and, and be just fine. They they would say, okay, that's your best punch. All right, well we're gonna, all right, we're gonna we're gonna throw back. And then once they threw back, you know, it just seemed like every time Louisville tried to throw a punch, Kentucky would throw one, would throw a haymaker back and 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 wobble them a little bit. And then Lamar Jackson turned the ball over four times, and then that knockout blows that last turnover, and they drove it down and, and kicked the game-winning field goal. So, you know, that surprised me the most because I've never really seen as much as much. Kentucky football as I've watched um, because I'm I guess I'm the illegal motion SEC expert so um, as much Kentucky as I've watched and as much as I've kind of followed them um, and as much as we talked about them in, in the preseason uh, previews as yeah they're good they're competitive but they're not ready, they proved otherwise and, and Benny Snell and Boom Williams, Stanley Boom Williams, Prove to me that they're they have a legitimate running attack, and they are a force to be reckoned with, and they're going to be. And I think Mark Stoops has done a good job of holding all of that together, and and uh, and making sure that they, you know, that they just keep dominating and just keep getting better each and every week, and they, and they really have. And uh, the most surprising win, I guess, I'll get to later. Uh, this is kind of what they call a tease.
1: Oh, well, let's uh, move on here quickly to the Big 12. Because quite frankly, there's not a lot to talk about from this weekend in the Big 12. We already talked about Tom Herman being fired. uh, Sorry, not being fired. Being hired at Texas. Um, Texas
2: Tech beat... Oh, it is Texas. They could have fired him, too.
1: Oh, well, you never know. But um, uh, just a, a, a quick fun fact. Since debuting those all-black uniforms in protest to Art Briles being fired, Baylor is zero and five. So, and they are doing what we will now refer to as the reverse Miami of Ohio. They started six and zero, and assuming they lose in Morgantown next week, they will finish the season six and six. So that has it has not been a banner year for the Bears, but no one really expected it to be, and. Quite frankly, there's not much to say about the Big 12 from this weekend. Um, you know, we will obviously preview Bedlam later this week. That is sort of the one big thing holding up this conference and, and the hopes and dreams of this the sad, sad Power Five conference. Because quite frankly, they're not a Power Five conference. They might be the seventh best conference in the country right now. If, if I, I think that's, you know, you know, I, I think that's not unreasonable to say. So, you know, unless you guys have any, unless you guys have any objection, I'd like to move straight to the Big Ten. There's nothing
2: to say about the Big 12. <laughs>
1: <laughs> there there really isn't. There, you know, nothing of note happened besides Kansas covering against Kansas State. So
2: I mean, I like that their logo still includes Roman numerals. That's true.
1: I... I you know, I, I have no problem with that, but the problem with Roman numerals is that you can't really do arithmetic with them and thus why traditionally uh, we moved to an Arabic numeral system that, uh, back in the middle ages. So, um, you know, even there, even there, it, it's, it's problematic. So obviously the big Ten, everything was overshadowed by the game. Um, but, you know, elsewhere, Josh mentioned the Iowa victory over Nebraska in resounding fashion. Somehow they had that big play offense going with three plays over 70 yards, um, winning 40 to 10 Wisconsin overcame a absolutely horrific first half to get there at, to score 24 straight points. And, uh, retain the axe for the 13th straight year in beating Minnesota 31 to 17 uh, behind four picks, two from senior quarterback cornerback Sojourn Shelton. But obviously, the whole conversation in the league this week is dominated by the Ohio State-Michigan game. And I guess my opening question is: We know how Jim Harbaugh feels, but Josh, I want to know how you feel. Did Michigan get hosed by the refs?
2: No. And here's why I feel this way. We talked about it with Oklahoma State against Central Michigan. We've talked about it in some other games. Don't put yourself in a position for the ref to potentially screw you over. If you play well enough the other 60 minutes, it's not going to matter. Or in the case of overtime, if you play better in the 60 plus minutes, it won't matter. Michigan's defense was on fire. J.T. Barrett was terrible passing the ball. 3.9 average per pass, 15 of 32, 124 yards of interception. They had nothing going for their second straight week passing the ball. They, the Ohio State offense was all about J.T. Barrett running. He had 30 carries for about 25, and yet Michigan never put a spy on him. That's coaching. Uh, Michigan had a quarterback who was banged up and they decided to throw from their own end zone and it was a pick six. That's bad coaching. We've said all year that Michigan can't run the ball against good defenses. Uh, 91 yards on 43 carries is a 2.1 average and their starter, Davion Smith, had 60 yards on 21 carries. How do you not fix this season long issue that was highlighted as their only, like that was, that was highlighted as their Achilles heel? back when we did our shows in August. That's bad coaching. I'm sorry, Jim Harbaugh, you don't get the right to complain when you totally foobarred yourself in this game.
1: <laughs> that, that was amazing. That was amazing, Josh. I've never heard you and Mike Wilbon agree in so much on one in one idea.
2: Because what? it's the truth. <laughs> and I'm sure the coach is going to confirm this, Coach. If, if you did what Harbaugh did for those 60 minutes – do you find it hilarious to turn around and try and cry foul about the ref?
0: Yeah, I, I do. I mean, even though it was it was a bad call, um, he did get hosed, but it's not something that you know you can you can go and, and say that you know you can't you can't cry foul when when you put yourself in that position. I mean, you you do things uh, throughout the course of the game. You you give J T Barrett chance after chance when he's when he's obviously struggling. You kind of give them. You know, you—it's you, kind of that play with fire mentality. You know, you let them down in the red zone so often, they're actually going to eventually uh, score on you. And you know, I, I was, to be honest, I was flipping back and forth between this game and the Georgia Georgia Tech game, so I honestly didn't see as much of it as I wanted to. But you know, you just got to look at—I mean, it's—you know—the the, the overtime period was a was a good period. It was a really good back and forth deal where. Um, but I always felt like Ohio State was in control of that just because they kind of ripped control back of the game um, late in the fourth quarter. So, you know, I just – you know, you, you hit the nail on the head with, with Jim Harbaugh. You know, he, he's made coaching mistakes all year long, and it's all just kind of come to a head here um, in this game, and it all just kind of come back to – come back came back, I should say, came back to bite him in the butt um, um, here. So it's – you know, again, he's got a long way to go as a college coach, I think, and he's, you know, he's another one of those that could that could very easily go the, the route of of Ed Orgeron if he focuses on all the crazy antics that he that he has for uh, for recruiting, and you know, maybe he needs to spend a little bit more time, you know, with his current team and, and just trying to figure out, you know, how to beat Ohio State. So, you know, maybe he needs to do that.
1: Yeah, I mean. As far as I'm concerned, I'm not even sure. A, you know, he was complaining about three calls. You know, one, I think that the the one he talked about with the Ohio State DB hooking his receiver, yeah. You know, but that that's a really tough call to make on the field in real time. Secondly, the... the, the Pass interference called on the Michigan D-back, on the Ohio State receiver. He claimed the ball was uncatchable. Well, the only reason the ball was uncatchable is because the Michigan defensive back is basically holding the wide receiver so he can't jump to catch the ball. And as far as the spot is concerned, I don't know how he thinks he has a better view of where, of where JT Barrett was from 45 yards away than the referee who's literally standing five yards away from where the play is happening. I think it's just sour grapes. And I get that it's a press conference 10 minutes after a very heated contest happened, but still like, just take a step back and I I understand that you're frustrated, but that's not a good look for a guy who's supposed to be a leader of men and a leader of young men and to whine and complain when, you know, the calls don't go your way, you know, too bad. I'm sorry. I, I, I have no sympathy whatsoever for you know for Michigan fans for Jim Harbaugh I have more sympathy for the Michigan players than I do quite frankly for anyone else at this point but stop griping you know what you guys had a phenomenal season 10 and 2 is absolutely nothing to sneeze at but you know
2: I'll tell you something crazy so in the Big Ten you know you had Woody Hayes who great coach but really ruffled the wrong feathers. Coached at the same time as Bo Schembechler. And Bo Schembechler was kind of like the all-shucks type guy. He seemed like a coach that you'd want to play for. And Michigan became kind of the sympathetic school because, you know, Bo never won a national title. He had a losing record out in Pasadena. He had his great in the regular season, but just couldn't win the, fit, win the get over that hump, and so Michigan kind of became a sympathetic school. And um, Ohio State then had Jim Tressel, who seemed like they could be losing a game for fifty nine minutes, and then the last sixty seconds pulling out of their butt, and that was always aggravated. And that was during the same time as Lloyd Carr, who was just like Bo outside of ninety seven. He just couldn't quite get over the hump. They, you know, they always said can't spell Lloyd without two L's, and it kind of became a joke of when is Michigan going to lose their two inexplicable games? And then Urban Meyer, Ohio State can do no wrong. He's like eighty and two at Ohio State. I'm not sure those numbers are exactly right. He's the uh,
1: he's thirty nine and t- two or thirty nine and three in <laughs> conference. Um. And, yeah, he's 39 and three in conference in five years.
2: And Michigan, this school that has so much history, goes through the Rich Rod and Brady Hoke years. And that brought about a little bit of sympathy. I, some people kind of laugh at Michigan, and other people were just like, what's going on there? Like, this is bad for the league to have them terrible. And in two years, Harbaugh has made Michigan the most hated team in the conference. My dad, who has a son who went to Michigan, my brother is a Michigan alum, told me he was rooting for Ohio State. He's never rooted for Ohio State in his life. No he, one likes Harbaugh. He hold he on. I, I want people who yeah. who
1: come from outside of Big Ten territory to understand this. Everyone in the Big Ten despises Ohio State with all of their being. Ohio, oh, yeah. Ohio, Ohio State is the evil empire. Ohio State is. Like, everything that everyone else in the conference hates about football and hates about, you know, just life. Ohio State is, you know, the team that we all love to hate. And I, you know what? I was rooting for Ohio State this weekend, too. I'm with your dad.
2: I mean, Harbaugh is such a dislikable personality. And putting the Jumpman logo on their jerseys, I mean, give me a break. He's a North Carolina alum who played basketball. Michael Jordan's silhouette should not be on a Michigan football jersey. Who played basketball in Chicago? Yeah, it's beyond stupid. They are, I mean, they are rough. He's ruffling so many feathers that even if it was the most egregious call in the history of college football, I still wouldn't care. And on, on top of that,
1: you know, they have those, those shirts that say "respect," but the S is a two because it's a Derek Jeter thing. Derek Jeter didn't go to Michigan either. He's from the state of Michigan, but come on, it's it's phony, it's a joke, and you know, I, I, have, zero I have zero sympathy.
0: Well, LeBron didn't go to Ohio State either, so
2: yeah, but you don't, yeah. but you know, you don't see but he's the- on the sideline watching the game. He's not, you know, they didn't put. they are not wearing LeBron sneakers.
1: They actually kind of wore LeBron cleats this weekend.
2: Oh, well, then, you know what? Screw Ohio State, too.
1: <laughs>
2: but at least, you know what? At least
1: LeBron has been an open Ohio State fan for pretty much as long as he's been in the NBA. Michael Jordan was never, you know, a Michigan oh. fan.
2: I'll take a page out of my dad's book when I asked who he was rooted for between Ohio State and Alabama, and he said he hoped the Goodyear blimp crash in the middle of the field, and they couldn't play the game. <sighs>
1: God bless. God bless you, Brian. God bless you, Brian. So, All right, we need to move on to the to the Pac twelve quickly. Um, obviously, the two big games of the weekend were uh, Colorado beating Utah, and Washington, Washington destroying Washington State in the Apple Cup. But a couple of other uh, interesting results: Oregon State beat Oregon And Guys, you coach you and Josh both uh, called Oregon State. Uh, to at least cover, if not win, that game. I called Kentucky, too. Yeah, I know. Uh, Coach, you were on fire this week, and you should have been been in Vegas, or at least Biloxi. Um, uh, USC rolled up on Notre Dame. But my question is, how many coaches from this conference are getting fired? None have gotten fired yet, but... You know, uh how many of these how many of the guys are getting fired? I think we're looking at about five guys potentially between Helfrich at Oregon, Jamore Junior at UCLA, um, our favorite Bluetooth at Arizona State, I say favorite with giant scare quotes around it, Rich Rod at Arizona and Sunny Dykes up at Cal. How many of these guys are not gonna be at the helms of their programs uh next year, Josh?
2: Well, I think Rich Rod has to go. We've talked about his tenure at Michigan and now Arizona. Just something about it doesn't translate to Power 5 conferences. This is now two schools. He was great at West Virginia that when they
1: were a Power 5 school.
2: But the, well, the Big East at that point, Miami and Virginia Tech was already gone. It was just going up against Pittsburgh and Syracuse. Are you ready to... Like battle of the hill at Syracuse. No, i I'm, I'm. I'm. I'm, 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 I'm I, I. You know, I love the orange.
1: <laughs> um, I will <laughs> raise the white white flag on that yeah, one.
2: I think that's just alarming about about uh Redrod. Todd Graham is tricky because Arizona State is a tough place to win at for some reason. They just never have consistently been good since the seventies. Yeah, they're they're doing a lot of renovations on Sun Devil Stadium, so I don't know if they have the money to buy him out, because I know that he got a pretty big contract after back-to-back 10 win seasons. I think that is important to remember. He won back-to-back seasons in 13-14, still made a bowl game last year. They had a fair number of injuries this year. I'm willing to give him the benefit of the doubt for one year, year. Uh, He's also stayed there really long. He seems to realize the errors of what he did to Pittsburgh and Rice earlier in his career. So I might give him another shot at it. And same with Jim Mora. He, this is a really bad injury year for them. And he's proven to be a really, really good recruiter. He's not that far removed from back to back double digit win seasons. So he's trending down, but I think they should still keep him for one more year. Um, so I got Rich right out. I also have Helfrich out, and Helfrich, I'm doing the uh, Bill Stewart test. You know, he was the, the coach at West Virginia who pulled the interim tag off. He was sentimental, and they got worse and worse each year. Well, that's what Helfrich has done. Since that title game, nine wins in 2014, four wins this year, they're obviously trending down. That's not good especially with Washington becoming a power and raiding the state of Oregon for their top recruits. And I'm also going to keep Sunny Dykes because they won eight games a year ago. They seem like they were on the right track. I know it was a step back this year, but offense was still really, really good, and he's an offensive coach. They just need to figure out some things on defense. I'm willing to give Sunny Dykes another run. So, yeah. Too fired.
1: You fired you, You've got Rich Rod and Helfrich. How about you, Coach?
0: I got Rich Rod, Helfrich, and uh, I think Morris' seat's going to be extremely hot coming into the year, and same with Sonny Dykes. I think uh, they were a roller coaster. So, um, And Sonny Dykes, actually, I have him gone, but he might be gone on his own. Um, oh. I saw his name come up in the, uh, in the candidates for Baylor, so uh, he might be gone on his own, so he yeah, might a be lot of on...
1: people think he's going to Baylor.
0: Yeah, he might be gone in a different type of category.
1: Well, I, I guess that, that brings up the question: Coach, is Baylor a better job than Cal? At this point, I don't know. I don't. I, quite frankly, I don't, I don't think so.
0: I don't, I don't think so either. Cal's got improving uh, facilities on you know on their end. I think Cal's doing some things to to kind of reinvigorate the football program. I think Sonny Dykes has done a good job there. You know, he's widely inconsistent, but that's just kind of the culture there. And that's been the culture there. Um, You know, that's kind of the way Jeff Tefford left it. Um, It's just kind of like a roller coaster type uh, culture. And uh, and I think Sonny Dykes is going to be the guy that's going to kind of level it out. And then eventually, you know, it's, you know, whoever was, Going to take that cow job, it, you're going to have to be patient with them because it's going to be a process of just ch- turning things around and just kind of getting it to where uh, they were the the cow team that was involved in the big game with Stanford.
1: Yeah, you know what? And I'm if I'm I'm a coaching candidate, I'm not touching Baylor with a ten foot pole because not all, the fallout has not ended from all of their scandals over. Yeah, it.
0: And, unless they completely clean house in the athletic department unless they completely clean house in the administration, school administration. I, I'm not touching that unless like I'm.
1: Even then there's still going to be sanctions coming down, I bet. And I, I don't want, at, at this point, you know, they, they have a, you know, they have a scarlet letter and you know, they're going to have a much tougher time competing for recruits in the state of Texas um, than they have recently. So
0: exactly. the, the, I'm the, hot shot coordinator in, like, the group of five, um, like if I'm freaking Tulsa's offensive coordinator, maybe I give it a shot. I don't know. But if I'm Sonny Dykes, I'm not touching that with the full-foot pole. If I'm Chad Morris, I'm staying my butt at uh, SMU.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well,
2: the, let's... the one thing you might say to yourself if you are Sonny Dykes is – Talk about going deep. I brought up the uh, rankings, college rankings, like their academics. Uh, Baylor is seventy-first in the country, which is solid, but I mean that's not you know it's not as good as some of the other schools around. And since they are a private school, they can tweak their own admissions a little bit because they are their own system. So if a player is kind of on the fence, maybe the coach can can. Speak as the path, we've seen plenty of private schools do that. Cal's a public ivy. They're number 20 in the entire country. So they have the much tougher academics. That's the one argument you can say about why Baylor is a tad better than Cal is just recruiting purposes. But I wouldn't touch with the 10-foot pole either, Matt. I think you hit, the, hit it perfectly with that. Baylor is an absolute mess.
1: Baylor is a complete mess, and I, I would not want to go, I don't want to be anywhere near Waco. So, um, well, let, let's finish this off quickly with the SEC. Um, Vandy, uh, upset at home over a Tennessee program that is falling apart in the second half of the year. Coach, you guys had a really, really rough one with uh, w- with the Jackets this weekend, um, Georgia losing at home to uh, Georgia Tech, uh, Mississippi State wins the Egg Bowl, Alabama dominated the Iron Bowl as we expected, uh, Arkansas continues their Jekyll and Hyde season by losing to a hapless Missouri team, we talked about the LSU-Texas A&M game um, on Thursday, so I want to start with you coach here, and... Who's the bigger disappointment this season, Tennessee or Ole Miss?
0: Ole Miss. Got to be Ole Miss because they were talking about they were the team that was going to dethrone, finally dethrone Alabama. They were the team. And SEC East wasn't that great to begin with. So winning the SEC East was not as big of an accomplishment as what everybody expected Ole Miss to be able to do. Ole Miss was going to be a playoff team. They were going to unseat Bama. They were going to roll and cruise all the way to the college football playoff. was the one ranked team in the country, and they had all this talent, and they fell apart. They absolutely fell apart. You had Chad Kelly, who was supposed to be—he was going to be a Heisman quarterback, and you know all the all this hoopla around that surrounding that program. Hugh Freeze was finally—you know—he finally had his ducks in a row, and he finally had everything together. So I, I'm more disappointed in Ole Miss personally. Um, because of just kind of what they were going to do uh, with Alabama, and Alabama got better. And what what ended up happening was, and this is kind of the Alabama effect, every team that played and got crushed by Alabama ended up, their seasons ended up falling apart, same with Tennessee. Tennessee had a rash of injuries, so it's kind of hard to say that you're, utter, that you're overly disappointed in them. They had a ton of injuries, and, you, and they didn't have as much depth as they would like to have. So uh, you can't hammer them too bad. Um, Ole Miss, they—I mean—they kind of just showed their their true colors there. I, I think they quit on Hugh Freeze. I, I wouldn't be shocked if if I read about that uh, with, with the team quitting on him. So to answer your questions, I definitely, definitely got to be Ole Miss because they were supposed to be the Bama killers and they
2: weren't. Josh, oh, you got to go with Ole Miss as well. I mean, just look at. Look at their wins and losses. I mean, first of all, Ole Miss five and seven, not even going to a bowl game. Uh, Tennessee still won eight games, but Ole Miss lost to Mississippi State. They're not going bowling. They lost to Arkansas, who's been totally erratic this year. Um, they're, you know, they, they lost to Vandy, got manhandled by Vandy, lost by twenty-one. For um, Tennessee, it played really well in that Vandy game. And, I mean, the the Doors are bowling, so that's not even a horrible loss. And they both lost to the Doors, but I wouldn't call, classify that as horrible. Uh, South Carolina is going bowling. That's not terrible. And A&M are, are good teams, especially Bama being a great team. But Tennessee still knocked off some good teams. They beat Florida. They beat Georgia. They beat Virginia Tech. They beat the Kentucky team that we talked about earlier in the show. So the Vols had – Some nice wins. They just slumped in the middle of their season. And with nothing to play for against Vanderbilt, they they just were a little disinterested. And the other problem with Ole Miss, what made it such a disappointing season, is the Vols had some internal issues pertaining to football. Ole Miss just had issues pertaining to life. They had their starting quarterback rush the field of a high school game to get into a fight. That's just your mental space being out there and not focusing on your football season at all. That's a bigger concern than anything that happened in Knoxville this year
1: yeah i don 't know just to be devil 's advocate, we saw the hype around Tennessee pretty early when they started out really well, and they just dropped off the second half. I know they you know before losing to Vandy, they'd won their previous three games, but they were against pretty much nobodies and I think that I think Butch Jones is starting next season on a very very warm seat, so Strong. Yeah, um, you know he and you know Hugh Freeze, if he if he stays, he is also going to be on a scalding seat. So, uh, is there anything else, um, Coach, that you want to uh, you know conclude here at the SEC with?
0: Well, um, I, I got to say this for uh, for a Georgia defense that improved mightily throughout the course of the season, they are the second worst team in red zone defense. Um, they allowed opponents to uh, travel into the red zone 37 times, and of those 37 times, they scored 35. Of, uh, they scored on 35 of those visits, and 29 of those scores were touchdowns. And so every time Tech got in, every time Georgia Tech got into the red zone, it was a guaranteed touchdown. Uh, their pass defense failed. Um, and it just kind of seemed like the thing you couldn't give up is what they gave up. So that was disappointing as well, um, to see that. And, uh, so with Georgia season, they finished seven to five, uh, a season that was somewhat expected, I would say. Um, but, uh, I don't know, like and then I want to comment on Vandy a little bit. Vandy's going bowling here. Um, you know, that that was probably the biggest surprise of the SEC uh, was that Vandy would, would be uh, a team that went bowling, a, a team that played just enough offense to complement their, you know, their top 30 defense that we all knew was strong. We all knew what Zach Cunningham brought to the table. We all knew, you know, Vandy was going to give you fits on defense. What we didn't account for was Ralph Webb. Um, and and that Vandy offense, we didn't think it was going to be a legitimate attack, and at times it wasn't. But they did just enough to uh, to get them in positions to win football games, and and that, that's all they needed. They dominated Ole Miss, and they and they dominated Tennessee down the stretch, and and they won some big football games, which is very atypical of, uh, of Vanderbilt. So um, hats off to the Commodores. Uh, and then Georgia was so disappointing uh, to lose, and, and to see the Tech players uh, ripping the hedges. So,
2: <laughs> well, I wanted to tie a bow real quick on on Mississippi State. They they finished the year five and seven, but if you're looking for a team to make improvements next year, I don't know if they can compete with Alabama. I'm not going to go that far, but Nick Fitzgerald, sophomore year. Unbelievable. Led them in rushing with over 1,200 yards. Had 21 touchdowns and 10 picks and almost 2,300 yards. Didn't even play against South Alabama. Went 0 for 3 in that game, but started the rest of the way. And a very weird 5-7 for, for Mississippi State. They missed last second field goal in their one-point loss to South Alabama. They lost by three in Baton Rouge. They lost in double overtime at Brigham Young, lost a two-point game in Lexington, Kentucky. And, you know, they flip a couple of those games. Those were down to the wire. This could be a team that, that won eight or nine games this year. Um, and with Fitzgerald to build around, we saw Mullins do this not that long ago when he built around a young quarterback by the name of Dak Prescott Just look out for Mississippi State next season. Bigger and better things for the Bulldogs. Well, on on that note, I think it's time for us to wrap
1: it up for this latest edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. So on behalf of the coach, Corey Burton, Nashville, Tennessee, and our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and counting in Chicago, Josh Cook, this is the professor in Los Angeles And so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast.